Well, I don't know. I feel like the days when I was undergraduate and was doing some stand-up comedy, snappy palaver with Gabby Cadaver, and in those wonderful sessions, what I would, uh, would end up with was no money, but lots of dark beer and pizza. Anchovies, please. I do really like those anchovies. Once I was in Venice, Italy, and I ordered a pizza, an octopus pizza. And actually, octopods are very cool creatures. So I've felt guilty about that ever since. So I guess I'm just going to have to wing it today. All right. Let's go back a little bit first as a sort of a footnote or end note, you might say, uh, to a discussion we were having about ritual. I remember a while back when uh, someone I knew was making a documentary film about something called the Psychedelic Venus Church. And this was, if you will, the left wing of the Sexual Freedom League, if you can imagine such a thing. And the, the difference between the Sexual Freedom League, this was up in San Francisco, the difference between the Sexual Freedom League and the Psychedelic Venus Church was that in the Psychedelic Venus Church they did allow uh, gay sexual events to happen at their parties. Some might describe them as orgies. In fact, that's probably the correct word to describe them. So at any rate, I showed up at this, uh, at this filming with my camera, my you know, funky cameras, sound camera, and uh, one thing I happened to know was that the, the director of this film, a chap with a Scandinavian name whose uh, grandfather had apparently sold Nazi films of disabled people and whatever, terrible films, uh, to make money. So this was a kind of dubious character back in the old days. So uh, I happened to know that he was uh, uh, making it with my girlfriend, or the woman I actually lived with at the, at the time. But... C'est la vie, c'est la guerre. So at, at any rate, I show up to do my filming and uh, usual stuff, and you know, people took off their their clothes. I removed my hat and my tie. That's about it. But then all of a sudden, uh, this guy was making it with uh, a woman. I noticed immediately that his member, if you want to call it that, was um, astonishingly minimal. And I was saying, wow. They were making it in the missionary position, and that's a good thing because that's probably the only position that uh, he was capable of, of, of making it. But what does this have to do with, with, with ritual? Well, part of, before any of this orgiastic behavior, if you want to call it that, began, there was a little ritual ceremony in which a man and a woman had their genitals covered with honey and maybe some herbs and spices, maybe they put something else in there, I don't have no idea it's possible. So, uh, and every participant in this uh, party, orgy, was supposed to go up and kiss and even lick a little bit each of the man's genitals and the woman's genitals. And that was kind of, that was a ritual, a, a planned ritual. And I guess it worked for, for some people. Curious characters. So gosh, okay, got that out of the way. What what are we going to talk about? I got to come up with some stuff. All right, something that's been very much on my mind is the idea of subtlety and nuance. We live in a world which is very 
black and white, very blatant. It hits you over the head all the time, assaults your ears, assaults your eyes, uh, you know, hip-hop music, which is great. I remember going to a Halloween party a while back at Webster Hall in New York, fun da dance place, and I, dancing to, to hip-hop with my girlfriend at the time and others, and toward the end of the evening at this uh, venue, every year on, on Halloween they had a virgin sacrifice, a mock virgin sacrifice. And boy, the orgiastic behavior really tuned up a notch uh, when that when that happened. But back to subtlety and nuance. As we go through life in our work situation, in our uh, uh, situation with our casual friends, whatever, or we go out shopping, all the normal things one does in life, in all of those situations, there's very little subtlety and nuance. I mean, people even have conversations about who knows what. People just talk. That's what people do. But, and then we get home, and we're with our, our loved one. We go out to dinner, even, or in some kind of situation like that, and whether loved one, our partner, the person we uh, are involved with. And sometimes we carry this very unsettled, mode of thought and behavior through all the way into the bedroom sometimes. And to me that strikes me as a bad thing. There's no place where subtlety and nuance are more appropriate than in intimate, sensual, ecstatically sensual situations. So let's think about how we can be more subtle, verbally especially, but also in, in other ways. When we are making love, or when we were, even when we are in sort of proto-lovemaking situations, just sensuous caressing and, and whatever, exploring subtlety, because new things, new ideas seldom come out of this bam, 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 bam thing that we're hit, hit with all the time. Another thing that I was thinking about in this connection is the notion of cliches. Oh my God, we're surrounded by cliches. And now you have uh, things like Netflix, and we're constantly, they say in my business, in the film business, content is king. Whoa, is content king. We've got so much stuff coming at us. And somebody once said that there are like 10 or 9 standard plots. And at the end of the day, that, that really hasn't changed. So we'll look at relationships as portrayed on, on, on the media, films, and Netflix and TV, and we just see the same old stuff again and again. We see the same kind of patterns, we see the same kind of stuff. For example, cliche, there's a guy, a man who works all day and at night he likes to go out with the guys because going out with the guys is the only way he can let his hair down, relax after a day on the job, in the office or whatever his job, his job is, fixing carburetors, whatever that, whatever that uh, person's employment entails. So he's out there because he knows that the only place that, that he can really express himself and let his hair down and, and not feel dominated, another interesting topic here, is in those type of, of situations. Well, if we kind of accept a cliche like that, like all cliches, it has some applicability. It is not utterly false, but it's easy to fall into the cliches, the standard plot lines that were fed and served in movies and TV all the time, even the lyrics of love songs, you know, whatever that sort of stuff is. So let's try to, let's try to move away from that. 
a little bit in our own personal lives. Your life is an original story. You're making the story all the time. There's a guy named Fritz Perls who had a psychological system or a set of ideas a fair amount of time ago, and um, he called it Gestalt therapy. A big deal for a while. I think it's kind of gone under the surface, even disappeared. But Gestalt therapy, one of the things Fritz Perls said, which I find rather interesting, he said, always be the hero of your own story. Well, gee. Sometimes in our jobs and when we're out shopping and, you know, whatever, we can't exactly be the hero of our own story, but we should always try to be that. When you are acting as, not just acting as, but when you are actually the hero of your own story, things get better everywhere. Things get better in intimate relationships because you, you, you are no longer put upon. You're no longer a secondary character. You're no longer supporting you're no longer an extra in a big shoot somewhere. You are the hero. You're the star, if you want to call it that, of your own story. I find that very, very important. Something that I'm just going to mention, this is like a one-liner from uh, my, uh, my stand-up days. I was talking uh, previously, and I know some of you might have objections to the, uh, to the concept of honoring your lover. And you think, well, you're just talking to guys out there, and, and uh, what, is, uh, what does that really mean? But then, you know, are women supposed to go around honoring their beloved all the time? Because that's what he expects. He expects you, the woman to you know, bow down and treat him as a demigod. That's not what I'm talking about. Honoring is a whole different mode of behavior, of thought, of conception, of nuance, as we were talking about before than any of those other things. So try to bear that in mind. And, uh, oh, but my one-liner, can't forget those punchlines. My one-liner has something to do with a concept that doesn't get brought up that much when people discuss relationships and sexuality and all the things that we talk about in these videos. And that word is ethics. Ethics. Right behavior whether you buy into the standard uh, sets of rules. I mean, some of them are pretty good. Others, um, it's interesting if you go back and see how they were actually formulated, the way that we look at something like the Ten Commandments and what the, how they uh, became formalized and uh, engraved in stone, as it were, is not exactly what we think, and uh, they are much later than we might have imagined, and they come, uh, they came into being under certain political situations involving, yes, verily the Babylonians, who I promise will not return later in this video in any size, shape, or form. But anyway, when I talk about ethics, for example, one kind of one-liner, which I'm sure you'll chuckle hysterically, was and is attraction is not an obligation that you confer on someone. If I go up to a, a woman and I'm attracted to her, she is in no sense obligated to have a similar attraction to me or to treat me in some other way or to go through some song and dance over a long period of time to somehow deal with this inappropriate attraction or unreturned attraction that she might have. So just remember that going through life. If you're attracted to someone, we're not talking about 
very casual situations when one is talking about what what, what might uh, be referred to as proto-sensual relationships, even proto-sexual. That does not confer an obligation on the other party. That's, I think that's very, very important to remember. It even deserves a little bit of ginseng green tea with a shot of tang. Oh, good heavens, that's good. So what else can we talk about? Uh, mm, 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 mm. Let's talk about some more about psychology, my friends. And specifically psychoanalysis, because that's a field, as I've mentioned in previous videos, that interests me the most and from which I think we can learn the most. So, there was a split in psychoanalysis very early on between ego psychology, working on strengthening the ego, and that was a, a school that was sort of begun by uh, Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, but there obviously were others, many others, particularly in, in, in the U.S., immediately jumped on board with this. This is how to, how to fix someone's life. Let's not worry so much about the unconscious and repression. All that. so strength, if you strengthen somebody's ego, it'll be okay. Sounds a little, bit, little, a little bit like cognitive behavior therapy, which we discussed in a pre previous video. And there, then uh, Sandor Ferenczi, who we mentioned before, one of Freud's compatriots, came along in 1917 with what is, no, is known as object relations theory. I had a uh, young lady in my life who was very interested in object relations theory, which is a school of psychoanalysis of, of clinical psychology, so she sought out an object relations therapy. And she went into his office and they closed, did the usual thing. She was on the couch or sitting across from him. I don't recall what his format was. And she would tell him stories about her life, and a lot of them were very sexy stories, and she was absolutely convinced that he was playing with himself under his desk. So he was relating to the object of his genitals instead of relating to the object of his amalazond, of his patient. But let's, let's drop that for a second. So, object relations was very much developed by British psychologists, primarily at the beginning Melanie Klein, followed by Donald Winnicott, and in a certain way by Wilfred Bion. For Melanie Klein, the infant initially comprehends objects as part objects. What do we mean by that? The individual cannot, if you want to use the term, integrate the, uh, the object into a certain whole. And by the way, I'm going to mention this with respect to sensuality, so hold on for a second. So, as a part object, the breast that feeds the infant is the good breast. And when the infant finds that no breast is available, the absent breast becomes the bad breast. Melanie Klein believed that when the object is split, the good object on the one hand, the bad object on the other, the ego is also split. This is something that happens in, in early infancy, and she referred to it as the paranoid schizoid position. Don't let that term bother you. This is the term that she coined, and you still see, you do see it in psychological literature today. 
The resolution comes when the infant is finally able to experience others and objects as wholes rather than as part objects. These positions, the paranoid schizoid position and the second one, which the, uh, the infant is able to integrate and experience objects as wholes, which she called, again, it's just the term of art she used, the depressive position, continues in the psyche throughout life. Wilfred Bion and others have said, well, there is a dynamic relationship as the psyche seeks to find an equilibrium between the paranoid, schizoid, and the depressive positions. So I find this fascinating. I think that when the individual is dealing with, for example, a lover or, or anyone as a part object, there can be a real problem with that. There becomes the good lover and the bad, not, a good, not in the sense of being a good lover, but the good partner and the bad partner. Sort of a paranoid schizoid, using Melanie Clyde's term, relationship uh, to the other, to the partner, to the person with whom one is in a relationship. One thing that I was thinking about which sort of led me into this area of thought and discussion was that every time that we, in an erotic situation, a sensual situation, are relating, whether it's relation of a woman to a, a man's pecs or abs, whatever women relate to, or genitals, nipples, which are possible, or whether it's a man relating to the, the woman's body, her derriere, her thighs, her breasts, other genital areas that, 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 that she has, you're at the same time relating to the whole person. If you're not, you're in the old infantile paranoid schizoid position. So if, the, if your, your partner withdraws uh, a, a, one of these erogenous zones, to use that good old-fashioned term, then your ego is split. You freak out. So just a, a sort of channel of thought to open up with respect to the notion of dealing with the whole object. The whole idea of object relations is that every object from a, a, a canopies or a, you know, a canopy, depending on your preference, all the way to humans, everything is an object. That's the whole nature of object relations. All right. Hey, uh, better have some more tea before I go into this. A woman I was involved with in a very loving, sensual, sensuous relationship told me that her immediately preceding boyfriend would always fix his hair. You know, I gave up on that a long time ago. I just let my hair do what it wants to do. But um, would always fix his hair before going into bed. Whoa. Well, you know what topic this sort of brings up. The topic is narcissism. According to Freud, again, narcissism is libidinal investment in the self. Libido obviously has to do with the pleasure principle, the, the, 
that whole area of sexuality as opposed to other types of drives, if you want to call them that. Andre Green, a French psychoanalyst within the last, I don't know, 15 years, had a very interesting counter theory that actually layers on to, to Freud. And he says that in contrast to Freud, it is both the libidinal, that is narcissism, is both the libidinal and the aggressive investment in the self. The narcissist, in some ways, is, as much as he loves himself libidinally, is also aggressing himself. And then when you know, aggression is such an important component of narcissism, uh, when the narcissist becomes aggressive to others, it is what we call in psychoanalysis egosyntonic aggression. What does that mean, syntonic? It means in tune with, if you will, in harmony with the ego. It's amazing. A narcissist goes out and is very aggressive to someone, either verbally or even, even, even physically, and it makes them feel good, makes their ego feel good, because this is egosyntonic aggression. They love seeing themselves as aggressive. So to be aggressive, including toward one's lover, is in tune with a narcissist's ego, meaning, or harmony, with and thus supportive of the ego. I find that fascinating. Think about people we know. Think about people you know in that respect, whether they be intimate relationships or otherwise. Another thing about the narcissist is that they become fixated on the childlike components of the self. Therefore, the narcissist exhibits emotional immaturity and exhibits pueril, childlike notions of strength, appearance, and competence. And also, the narcissist esteems personality attributes that are esteemed among children rather than among adults. Just as a five-year-old wants to be admired for his or her toys, the adult narcissist wants to be admired for his or her toys, cars, motorcycles, clothes, whatever those toys happen to be. So the narcissist is going around, and there are levels of narcissism. There's pathological narcissism, which is very difficult to treat in its extreme forms. But there's common everyday narcissism, such as we see in our ordinary lives. In addition to this grandiose and envious behaviors and the lack of empathy, that's a key component of narcissism. Characteristics of the narcissism include the incapacity to depend on anyone, by the way, including his or her lover. And this is because to depend on someone makes the narcissist feel inferior. Wow, think about that. I've never thought about that before. It's kind of, kind of obvious. I can't depend on you because that means I, I need you. And that means that there's something lacking in me. And I can't tolerate the notion that there's anything lacking in me because that's just who I am. That's how I am. Another thing is the, uh, which very much in, in concert with that, in parallel with that, is the incapacity to make commitments, including to his or her lover. Think about it. Think about those very 
self-centered people you maybe even had relationships with. People always say, well, she won't commit, he won't commit, and all that. But I mean, in your terms, of, you're talking about marriage or formalizing the relationship or saying you're in a relationship on Facebook, which is really a big deal, or on Instagram, for heaven's sakes, it goes on and on. Do they do it on LinkedIn? I don't know. Anyway, my girlfriend and I, I mean, in one particular case, we've had this big deal. Well, we're both going to say that we're not single in a, in a relationship on the same day, you know, at the same time. That's the modern world. But this incapacity to commit is extremely important in looking at people. People, I'm talking about commit to, I'm going to help you with something. I'm going to do the shopping. I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to take it from the most mundane to the most advanced levels. Again, these are situations where the the narcissist is not a good person to be in a relationship with. Another typical pattern of the narcissist is that they will seduce someone whom they idealize unrealistically. They create a kind of faux image or persona of this person in their minds and then they say, oh boy, I'm going to seduce this person. It feeds that person's ego. If you're a narcissist, you have to be with someone you've decided is the most fabulous, incredible person in the world. Not that they will ever be as good as you, mind you. But then they drop them. They drop people when these other people fail to meet their expectations. Also for the narcissist, which goes along with the inability, incapacity to depend, the inability to make commitments. For the narcissist, people who are out of sight are out of mind. So do narcissists cheat? Oh yeah. Another topic that I'm not going to go into. Do narcissists cheat? Yeah. You know, why not? I'm a narcissist. I can cheat. So for the narcissist, cheating, if you want to call it that, is a normal form of behavior. They say that we're living in a culture of narcissism. I mean, that was the title of a book, something like that, a while back, and the whole concept that our society is ruled by narcissists comes and goes. Certain political figures have been identified as narcissists, even what they call malignant narcissists. I won't mention any names, but uh, you know they call these people leaders, which I always I don't like that term. I think what they should be called followers. In Germany, Hitler was their Führer, which meant simply the leader. For me, these people are our followers. They're there to enact our bidding. Someone I would never normally quote because for a number of reasons. Perhaps the most prominent one being because the guy simply talks funny. That is Bob Dylan when he said, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters. Which I always found rather profound. It's kind of like, forget about those leaders, but there are these little rules that you have to follow and just to sort of fly beneath the radar and don't get hassled. Watch your parking meters. And that applies not only to parking meters, but to other things as well. Uh, oh my goodness, where can we go from here? Magic. I've talked about magic in a few connections. Magic is something that can and should happen in sensual situations between lovers. Sensuality is the playing field. The, it is like the field, the fertile field in which magic can grow 
and flower, in which magic, all of a sudden there's this amazing little, tiny little plant growing out of, the, of your garden. You don't know what it is, you never expected it. It brings you such joy and such a thrill as if it appeared by magic. Julius Evola was an Italian magus, writer, and philosopher. And you know what? There's a lot of things about Julius Evola that you and I are not going to like. But he had some uh, interesting things to say about magic. I'm going to share a few of those things with you after I have some more tea. I think that ginseng is getting to me. So, Julius Avila said, the first initiative of a person seeking the way must be to reject the habitual image he has of himself. He will only be able to begin to say I when this magical word, the word I, corresponds to the inner imagination of self-awareness unconstrained by limitations of space, The life of all being, and I'm going to put a bracket here and say that I would include infinitesimally small particles, neutrinos, tachyons, space-time atoms, like we discussed a video or two ago, is ruled by a primordial force deep inside them, or, don't call it force, call it energy at the deepest level, citabavagin, that jitter motion that underlies everything, no matter how small, even our little pet space-time atoms. The nature of this force, Avila said, is craving. An appetite that is never satisfied. An endless restlessness. An irresistible need and a blind, wild yearning. The essence of this primordial cosmic nature is becoming, not being, but becoming. Chaotic and disorderly transformation is what our lives and what the lives of everything in a certain way consists of. This matter of ours is neither an abstraction of profane philosophy nor a myth or a fairy tale, but a living and powerful reality, which most of the human race does not know. Going on with, with Avila, one of the instruments of operative magic is the ability to fix a feeling, to realize it as an objective something not connected by any reference to my physical body. Well, I would put a bracket here again and say that Avila has not yet made the great leap away from dualism. He's still thinking about the mind and the body being separate, which is a big no-no for me. Not to be confused with the Italian composer Luigi Nono as a state that I can posit outside of myself in space, so to speak, without it ceasing to be a conscious event. So I can posit the space outside myself in space, in the cosmos, but it nevertheless never ceases to be an event in my consciousness. Nothing, Evola said, can be done in operative magic without the ability to evoke, nourish, and then free oneself by inducing or projecting from a feeling or a thought. 
I think this is fascinating, fascinating thinking about magic because it's not the way that magic is often dealt with. So much online about magic, so many books about magic, so many people out there selling you spells and all this sort of stuff, is if magic isn't something that you can simply make, and one, as I said a moment ago, one of the great fields, one of the, one of the most important contexts in which you can make magic and become joyous in magic when it appears, in a touch, in a kiss, in an orgasm. There's nothing more magical than the great orgasm. But anyway, so magic has taken many forms over the course of time. Of course, there was a, in the Middle Ages, Sometimes in the ancient world, but not so much. The ancients, uh, the ancient Greeks, whatever, certainly love their magicians and they love the practitioners of magic. They love magic. They accepted it because the gods did magic in one way or another all the time. The uh, Abrahamic god, Judeo-Christian god, just put everything in, in place and left us to uh, to mess it up and try to figure out what he really wanted us to do. Whereas the Greek and Roman gods, in their their wisdom, kept doing magic. And sometimes the magic was not, not so great. I don't necessarily want to be turned into an aardvark simply because I offended some god or other. I'd rather not. I'd choose another species probably than an aardvark, although aardvarks are kind of cool, Tasmanian devil, I don't know. So going into the past, if you look at the things that witches did, in the Middle Ages, there was something that was kind of cool. A woman named Matteuccia de Francesco, the witch of Ripabianco, was burned at the stake in 1428, and it is believed that she was the first witch to be burned at the stake because she could fly. That was a big no-no witch thing. But from a modern standpoint, you can say that Matteuccia De Francesco, the, the witch of Ribabianco, had merely mastered the tantric ashtasiddhi of Lagima, the ability to be weightless. Dig it? So, oh God, what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to segue to a topic that in my mind is related because if you, if you look at some of the, of the things that Avila was saying, about primordial force, energy at the deepest level, the concept of positing a desire, if you will, outside of yourself, of dealing with that, the irresistible need, blind, wild yearning. This brings to mind a chat we've talked about before, the French psychoanalyst and philosopher Jacques Lacan. And he discussed something called jouissance, so, rather than going through an etymology of this French word, let's talk about jouissance as simply as we can in terms of what Jacques Lacan meant by it. One, jouissance is an excess of life. An excess of life. Two, jouissance is an enjoyment beyond the pleasure principle which is the title of the book by, by Freud and also by me. Don't forget you heard that here. In terms of jouissance as an excess of life, 
Lacan describes it in his seminar number seven in 1960 as a superabundant vitality, which cannot be correlated to affect or to an emotion. It is simply a superabundant vitality. This reminds you a little bit of channeling Zittelbewegung. Nah, you know, maybe, maybe. And as an enjoyment that goes beyond the pleasure principle, Lacan describes jouissance in his Seminar 10 as a background enjoyment, if you will, a substrate. Is that another term? I don't know if you would have used it, but I just have. A substrate of emotion. In, however, I should say, in his Seminar The Other Side of Psychoanalysis in between 1969 and 1970, Lacan introduced the concept of surplus enjoyment, plus de jouir. He was inspired by Karl Marx's concept of surplus value. He considered the objet petit a as the excess of jouissance, which has no use value and which persists for the mere sake of jouissance. Now, what do we mean by objet petit a, which is something, I'm sure, a term that unless you've studied philosophy or of this sort or Freudian psychoanalysis or Lacan, you, probably, you may not be familiar with. Little object de. Well, petit a, objet petit a, is the unattainable object of desire, or, this is the most important part, or, the object cause of desire, the object which is the cause of desire. So his discussion of surplus enjoyment, reminds me a little bit of when we talk about Herbert Marcuse's thought idea about surplus repression. So for more sexcapades, be sure to join us, join me, on future editions of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Many thanks for hanging out through this little uh, stand-up comedy session, although I'm sitting down. I guess it's sit-down comedy. Bye for now. Tiresias was a blind prophet of Apollo in Thebes, famous for clairvoyance. He was the son of the shepherd of Eris and the nymph of Shiriklo. Tiresias participated fully in seven generations in Thebes, beginning as advisor to Cadmus himself, the founder and first king of Thebes. In Euripides the Bacchae, Tiresias warns the current king, Pentheus, the man of sorrows, against announcing the ecstatically sensual Dionysus, the god of wine. Tiresias. There is no god above sex. It is the stone, I tell you. Many gods are wild beasts, but the snake is the oldest of the gods. When he conceals himself in the ground, there you have the image of sex. There is in it life and death. What God can incarnate and include so much? 
Tiresias is old and is not a god. When he was young, he was ignorant. Sex is ambiguous and always equivocal. It is a half which appears a whole. Man succeeds in incarnating it, in living inside it, like the good swimmer in the water. But meanwhile, he has got old, he has touched the stone. At the end, one idea, one illusion is left to him, that the other's sex comes out of it satisfied. Well, don't believe it. I know that for all it is a wasted fatigue. Cesare Pavese, Dialogi con Luco. The purpose of evolution is to promote the proliferation and dominance of the species. The more that any given species reproduces, the greater chance it has not only of survival, but of becoming dominant in its ecosystem. In the case of many species, including our own, attractiveness to the other gender encourages sexual activity and thus population growth. Thus, beauty of a certain type is selected for by evolution. In humans, women seek out men at their own level of attractiveness or greater and reject men who are less attractive. The same applies to men, although perhaps in a different way, and perhaps also to a lesser extent. In light of what I have just stated, a man who is less attractive than the woman he pursues will always be rejected. This applies no matter how caring, supportive, kind, and devoted he may be. So you ugly guys out there, live with it. Don't blame the woman you're infatuated or in love with. Blame Darwin. Blame your freaking fate. And hope that you are more attractive next time around. Musical excerpt, Randolph Pitts, Der Schatten eines Traumes, revised 2020.